Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, Nerdcasters. I'm Scott Bland. You've probably seen Donald Trump's most recent tweets. I won, I won, etc., etc. But what happens a few seconds later? Twitter posts a warning saying some version of this claim is disputed. disputed. Something like that. Goes right along the bottom of the tweet. Sometimes even blacks out the whole tweet itself. Well, listeners, there's a few new apps in town. And for one, they don't do warning labels. Parler's interesting because it's not actually as kind of technologically advanced a platform as Twitter in a lot of ways, but it's kind of libertarian leaning. It's saying that they're not going to do anything to censor people's free speech. These apps are pretty popular, and they're getting even more popular. And they're kind of like the Wild West. If you're looking for the sheriff, don't check the saloons. He's in the next town over. Anyway, there are some big reasons why people like them. And I think that talkers on the right are very good at kind of putting up their audience um, and making people feel smart. They're very good at making things intriguing and scandalous. Social media is social. People aren't leaving Facebook and Twitter in big numbers, but Parler, Rumble, a couple other examples like that, What even are these new apps? It is a very engaging space to be in. And how might they change what news people are seeing and what realities we're living in? So, like, once you've spent a bunch of hours on your Facebook and your Spotify and your Twitter, like, going through all this stuff, it starts serving you different information. Um, It is really fascinating to see just how segregated people's news and information is becoming. And it does, it starts to make sense for how different our opinions are. Maggie Severns is a reporter here at Politico. Hi, Scott. And she's been scrolling, listening, investigating these apps and what's going on on them. I do a lot of investigative reporting and cover money and politics. And she's here to tell me what the heck they are and why they matter. So, Maggie, I'm not super online or (laughs) particularly tech-savvy. I mean, I I get by, but basically I'm a 70-year-old trapped in a mortal (laughs) body. I I understand what Parler is. It's like kind of a a Twitter-like substance. What is Rumble? What are some of these other newer platforms that that you've been looking into. Maybe you're not an early adopter of of youth culture <laughs> or of kid things. It's the online stuff, you know, <laughs> once I can get it onto my heart, once I can get it into Excel, then that's 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 where that's where my Yeah, my your real computer 1.0. But, yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so um <laughs> Parler like I said is kind of aiming to be a rival to Twitter. But it's it's kind of interesting because it actually doesn't use um, algorithms the same way that Twitter does. Parler basically will take everyone that you follow and slap up their tweets or their kind of their messages in reverse chronological order if you go on it. Rumble is a rival to YouTube, so it's a video platform. What these platforms are trying to kind of make their defining characteristic is that they're saying that they aren't going to 
quote unquote kind of censor content. Now, what that means practically is that people like Alex Jones, people like the Proud Boys, who YouTube and Twitter have recently been taking a harder line towards and in some cases kicking off their platforms, have found a home on places like Rumble and Parler. What kind of numbers are we talking about when you mention this you know, explosive growth in the audience that, that some people are experiencing on these apps right now? It's so hard to say. And this is something I was trying to figure out reporting um, the story for this week. But the things that we can say is that these sites have gone from being kind of outliers that you didn't really expect for things to get a lot of views to places where, you know, on Parler, for example, people have millions of followers. Now, how many of those followers are bots or kind of these unused accounts? We don't know. But someone can have, you know, two, three million followers on Parler now. And it was number one on the iTunes store several days in a row, which means that there was, you know, an app that people were really rushing to download more than they were downloading other apps. Now, does that mean that it's on the scale of Twitter, which people have been downloading every day for years? Of course not. You know, these places are much, much smaller. Um, could they be kind of a flash in the pan where a few months from now, um, the scales kind of tip back and people, you know, the fact about social media is people want to be where other people are, right? And that's why it's so hard for rivals to Facebook, YouTube, Twitter to get started. But we do know that there's a lot of growth in this area right now uh, as people look for what they see as, you know, an alternative to big tech and an alternative to mainstream media. When Ted Cruz posts on Parler, is he posting different things than when he posts on Twitter or is he just posting the same thing in multiple places? It's pretty similar. I haven't done a side by side, but a lot of what you see from a lot of what you see from major people on Parler, it's kind of funny because I think that joining for most people, joining Parler is kind of the thing in and of itself. So there's a lot of like screw big tech content on Parler. There's a lot of content saying, you know, thank goodness I'm here and now I can finally be free. But not a lot of people like a Sean Hannity, who's big on Parler, have a lot to say that's different from what they would say on their Twitter or their Facebook, right? A lot of people just need to post their tweets, um, you know, post clips from their show. If you have a show, post their podcast. So it's pretty, the content itself is for the most part, pretty similar. Um, The exception being people who have really leaned into the platform and are trying to, you know, draw a lot of attention to it. But for the most part, it's similar to what you'd see from people elsewhere. Yeah. In in your story, you mentioned Apple podcast downloads being one of the places where we can spot some of these trends. And you spotlighted a guy, a conservative commentator called Dan Bongino, as one of these rising commentators on the right. And you wrote that his podcast actually beat out The Daily from the New York Times and Joe Rogan for the number one podcast spot for a little while there. His Facebook posts were seeing huge engagement. Yeah, and Dan Bongino is another kind of interesting example and became the focus of the story because Facebook traffic or, you know, shares on Facebook, he has this incredibly devoted base where you can measure him against other people on Facebook. And he is one of the most shared people across Facebook every day, you know, on par with Fox News, you know, on par with Donald Trump. People love his content. So he's, you know, an interesting figure. Um, You know, what is he talking about? For the most part, he is picking up the news of the day. And often it's, you know, the news of the day through Trump's lens and whatever kind of Trump and the MAGA space is talking about and disseminating it on his show. And that's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. So the last couple of weeks, he's devoted a lot of time to talking about different 
irregularities, he would call them, or anomalies in the election. Um, you know, things like the fact that Florida is a bellwether state, but it went for Trump. You know, what are other kind of usual bellwether places that went for Trump, yet the election went for Joe Biden? And so he's, you know, kind of surfacing these things that Trump would be surfacing and kind of repeatedly raising the question of, was this a fair election? Now, he isn't going so far as some folks to say, you know, constantly that this election was fraudulent, but he really kind of walks up to that line with people who are looking for information about, is there something fishy going on here? And he really probes that space over and over. You know, he's someone who's very passionate. He's someone who's kind of famous for being, you know, very kind of loud and outspoken. And I think people really gravitate towards that right now because it's it's like Trump. So what what does the development of these audiences mean for like mainstream news outlets like like Politico. I mean, we've seen for a while kind of a fragmentation of the news media and where people get their news. Is this the next step in that trend? That's a big question. And I think there are kind of two answers for that. I think that on the right, there's this whole question about, you know, is Trump going to start his own news service? Is this going to be some kind of competition with Fox? You know, I think that the conservative stars that we're seeing on the right also have the power to kind of build their own channels, as we're seeing with someone like Dan Bongino. I think that for kind of more mainstream media, you know, the Politicos and the New York Times is never anyone else of the world. It's this really interesting thing that we're seeing where as social media becomes more and more powerful when it comes to disseminating news, people are seeing completely different news in their feeds, right? So Facebook is a very algorithm-based space. The more you like something, the more you're going to see it. And yes, you see content from friends and people you know, but you're also, the news that you see is very much shaped by what you like. And so I think that, you know, I think you use the word fragmented, and I think that's absolutely true, that people are getting completely different news realities based on who you are and what you're looking for. And in the future, um, you know, we could see more of that. I don't know what that means for, you know, the reach of a place like a Politico or the New York Times that still has pretty broad reach. But it does mean that what we're saying to people when it feels like the country is kind of increasingly divided, I think that that is one reason why is that people are just seeing completely different realities when they go online. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, for you to be reporting on this, you're diving into and, and, you know, presumably watching and listening to hours and hours of podcasts and videos, even to just figure out what's happening there, you you had to kind of dive into a different stream of content, basically, than what you're normally swimming in. Yeah, well, and it's funny because once you do that, your algorithm is different, right? So like once you've spent a bunch of hours on your Facebook and your Spotify and your Twitter, like going through all this stuff, it starts serving you different information and you realize, oh, like my normal media diet is really different from the media diet of someone who's listening to Dan Bongino every day. Or, you know, for a Dan Bongino listener, if they started just looking at Politico, they would start getting served some different content every day. So it is really fascinating to see just how segregated people's news and information is becoming. And it does, it starts to make sense for how um, different our opinions are. I mean, that, that phenomenon in and of itself seems like ripe to make it difficult to report on and to understand and probably makes it underreported right? <laughs> From like a media perspective. I think definitely underreported. I think another thing I noticed a lot while just covering this was that I don't think that this is something, 
you know, we've talked about it in terms of kind of the right and maybe the center and the left and things like that. But there's also, I think, uh, inside the D.C. bubble versus outside the D.C. bubble phenomenon. You know, Dan Bongino's audience is not really meant to be anyone in Washington. And when I started contacting, you know, Republican consultants and other kind of talkers saying, you know, I want to talk about this person who has this big audience, you know, let's talk about these kind of conservative firebrands who are rising up the podcast charts. They don't listen to a lot of that content. One, they don't need to, they're already very much in the loop, but also it's just, it's not meant for them. It's meant for, you know, a lot of rank and file, you know, Republicans who are out in the states. And so it, it's also there are these divides between what people are consuming in D.C. and kind of the reality here and what is happening uh, elsewhere. As some of these platforms for kind of news commentary explode, we're seeing like, uh, you know, local media hollowing out. We're actually seeing, you know, some pretty bizarre instances of like partisan actors trying to fill that space in addition to just national stuff and commentary just vacuuming up all that empty space like how do you think this plays in communities that are you know losing their local reporting and yeah it's interesting to hear you bring that up because it's two different phenomenons but it reaches Mm -hmm. it it does like reach people the same right you know we've seen like you said reports this year of some major partisan funders getting into local news so that they can spread information, you know, from the left or from the right, you know, from those viewpoints to people. And then you have people who are just, you know, a conservative commentator who makes a podcast and maybe also is building a website and is trying to become a little media mogul. Um, But those people can really have the same target audience. And either way, the result is that the information getting to people is not, you know, local information from the local newspaper or is not information um, from a real nonpartisan news outlet that is seeking to report kind of the straight and narrow news. I'm not saying, by the way, that, you know, the media is perfect. That's a lot of these places kind of get there. Um, do their job by kind of bashing the mainstream media. And I'm not saying that it's kind of without reproach, but it is, uh, I think there really is something lost when those people who are just trying to deliver the news are out of the equation. How did you approach the question of covering someone who in this instance is like casting down on the election? Like the, it's just like, frankly, silly. <laughs> like we've done a lot of our own reporting on on everything around it. And it's just like, it's not there. Like, how do we talk about this without signal boosting this concept that like just doesn't line up with reality? But I'm curious to hear how you approached how you approached that in your reporting. I think that after doing this story, I kind of two things really crossed my mind. One is that I do not envy media reporters who are having to parse this all the time because it's really it's really difficult. First of all, kind of the angle that I was coming into this story from was really kind of looking at it almost as a business story, you know, who is, what is this person trying to build? You know, we, I wrote a lot about Dan Bongino, who has an ownership stake in Rumble and Parlor that we talked about earlier. He also built his own rival to Drudge Report. Um, his podcast is doing really well. So this is someone who, you know, is really capitalizing on a moment, you know, for audience, for money. You can look at it in any kind of, any light that you want. But, uh, you know, there is a message here. And by trying to own that message, this person is really kind of leveraging his brand when it comes to kind of trying to be 
responsible about how you treat the election claims. Luckily, we have a really smart audience at Politico, you know, and either, you know, we got into some of that and tried to be very clear about how thoroughly debunked some of the things that Dan Bongino was talking about. Um, but I think that also, in addition to being clear, knowing that I'm speaking to an audience that can kind of parse those things he's saying and also look at kind of the information that's been put out by government sources that we cited in the article, um, information that's kind of been laid out in clear facts that we cited and linked to is really helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. Because to be clear, if you don't, you know, if you don't have an audience, if you have an audience that's kind of inclined to read those false claims that are being put forward and kind of give those more daylight, I think that that it just makes it harder and harder to write about because you feel like you are giving more of a platform to someone who's saying some irresponsible things. Yeah. You know, here's a a future facing question for you. So what what is what is the growth of these platforms and audiences mean for, you know, the future of the the Republican Party or the conservative movement or the the Trump movement specifically. And the context for what I'm asking about this, I've I've noticed recently as uh, former President Barack Obama has been uh, making the rounds hawking his new book, he's been talking about how in retrospect, he thinks that looking at Sarah Palin's role and actions and big rallies during the 2008 election really foreshadowed a lot about the next 10 years of American politics, uh, even in defeat. And and that made me wonder, you know, is, is this moment of Trump uh, casting doubt on the election results, everything going on around that, this kind of different ecosystem on the right springing up and building audience around that? Uh, is this maybe not a passing thing, but something that, that could help define or explain the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, obviously, we can't see into the future, but it's certainly something that I kind of wondered and thought about. I think that some people heading into this election, you know, there's a sense from some people that if Trump is defeated, would it be a referendum on Trumpism and then Trumpism would go away, right? And instead, what we're seeing is Trump building this narrative that can kind of help him move forward, um, help him maintain his grip on the Republican Party. And I think that when you see these audiences flooding to alternative social media platforms, um, flooding to podcasts and other news sources that can help get them more of that information, what that tells us is that people are responding, right? And responding to in a way that says that this is not, you know, a pendulum that's about to swing back in the other direction. It's something is hardening here going forward for the time ahead. We don't have a crystal ball. We can't look in the future. But the, you know, I'm curious your thought about whether people really stay with these these new sites uh, or whether this is something that is kind of like building, building bigger as opposed to a phase. To me, it's less about kind of the individuals. It's less about, you know, is um, is Dan Bongino going to be a lasting star? Is Ben Shapiro going to be on top? You know, like, it's less about which person or even whether Parler is here to stay. It's more about is this alternative media that we're seeing, especially this like digital first alternative media where anyone can kind of start their own little media world and gain a following, you know, is that something that's really going to keep booming? And it seems like so long as there are people looking for more news to consume that's down this lane. And we've seen, you know, a boom in this in recent years, right? You know, QAnon and other kind of theories that have really built a following. It seems like people will be looking for 
more news that can satisfy that hunger. You know, I think that skepticism and distrust in the mainstream media is also very real right now. And so I think that that's another reason that people are turning away um, from reading kind of their main online news sources. And I think also as long as that perception continues, people are going to be looking for something that's um, alternative. So we'll see. But I think that things are heading in that direction right now. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, agree, I agree with that. And and I think it's it's tough for reporters to like confront the growing skepticism about the media because there's a tendency to only want to engage with the bad faith <laughs> attacks on it as opposed mm-hmm. to the kind of legitimate criticisms of, you know, how, how we operate and what we could do better. Yeah. You know what I always think about is how it's like there are always those surveys about how people really don't like lawmakers and don't like Congress and trust in it in Congress isn't an all time low. But then if you talk to lawmakers about it, it's like, well, but my constituents like me, I only have good experiences when people, you know, I talk to people and I feel like I'm liked and, you know, people don't want to believe that they are just generally there's bad sentiment towards them and walking around in the world. It's not like, you know, people are bound to get spat on and have these bad encounters. And I think it's kind of the same with the media. It's like, it's a hard thing to engage with, but really there's a lot of distrust and dislike out there that there's kind of a reluctance to engage in because some of it is um, built and bred by Trump and other people who might not have um, great interests. And then some of it is probably legitimate, you know, things that are probably cause for self-reflection. But I think it's just a really difficult, it's just a difficult thing for, I think, media to grapple with. And some people keep it as arm's length. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great point about Trump's criticism of the media, too, which kind of puts people in a defensive crouch sometimes instead of in a in an introspective mood. Understandable, but uh, maybe not productive. <laughs> <laughs> Is is this stuff just happening more in public now than it used to? I feel like the, there's always been kind of the, these alternate information ecosystems. Just it used to happen by the mail, basically, and so you know it was it was just like less visible. I guess it depends on what you mean. Like there have always been alternate information ecosystems, right? It's a dominance of them and and the the like the separation of yeah like the Venn diagram there, there's there's not as much overlap anymore that's the that's the thing well and I think maybe there's just there are so much more media these days for me one of the kind of aha moments was looking at the podcast charts and just seeing the number of conservative shows that are doing so well but on the other hand you know like Rush has been around for years right. So it's not like you didn't have um, conservative talkers on the radio for years. I think that politically we're more polarized. So things that people are saying tend to be more, arguably more extreme right now. Mm-hmm. And I think that consumers have a lot more options now than they did in the past. That's a good point. But, you know, hard numbers on kind of how much different information are people being fed. That's, you know, hard to come by. Yeah, no, but that, that's a really good question, though. Like, how much how much of this is, like, you know, kind of a growth area and how much of it is, like, cannibalizing the, the Rush Limbaugh audience of, or maybe not necessarily cannibalizing, but, like, building on top of yeah. uh, or um, the, you know, Rush Limbaugh audience for 10, 10, 20 years or 30 years, 40 years. Well, and a <laughs> slightly younger, you know, not necessarily a young audience, but a slightly younger audience coming yeah. of age, you know, is mm-hmm. another. I mean, one key thing is that a lot of a lot of people nowadays this kind of newer group is much more digital first and they're much more much better at putting things out on social you know and a lot of things we've talked about 
today have been podcasts that then get syndicated on the radio as opposed to radio shows that then get syndicated, you know, that then get turned into podcasts. So it's just a different, slightly different generation too. Maggie, this is super interesting. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amon. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like what you hear, check out some of our other podcasts. There's Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. And to name one more, we have a brand new podcast series from Politico, Global Translations. Subscribe wherever you're listening. We're off next week, but have a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk to you again the week after.